This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction and infrastructure projects nationwide. And we're live. Welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average podcast. On the show this week, we've got John Green, Vice President of Global HSE with SNC Lavalin. He was credited with bringing safety differently to Europe and was named the most influential safety person in the world in 2017. John, if you just want to come in and introduce yourself. Okay, I've been in safety, John Green, I've been in safety for over 40 years now. I, I, I constantly have to refresh how long that is every time I do something like this, but it's over over 42 years. I've never actually done anything else. Um, you know, so safety was 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 the first thing that I got involved in as a job. So I did when I left university, and and to this very day, it's still it's still some something I I thoroughly enjoy. So um, I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to this, Blair. Brilliant, brilliant. I'm looking forward to, to myself, John. So if we just go back to the start, tell us about your early life, where you were brought up. So I'm a Glasgow boy, born and raised in Govan. Um, and Govan is, uh, Billy Connolly described it as one of a quaint little seaside town in Glasgow. But it, it was it was a pretty rough place when I was growing up in, in the 50s and the 60s. Mum and dad were both teachers. Um, and spent all of my youth, you know, growing up in the south side of Glasgow. I uh, went to school there. I think it was always, my dad always deemed that we, I was going to go to university, whether I wanted to or not. So uh, I went to university. He wanted me to study something different to what I ended up studying. But that's, that's another story altogether because I didn't study safety to begin with. I studied something else. But I had a, I had a terrific childhood and loved growing up in the south side of Glasgow. Still nice to go back and see those places, although Govan has changed beyond all recognition yeah. uh, from when I was there. Yeah, with the shipyards um, changing quite significantly, oh. uh, all being upgraded, yeah. Yeah, well, you see the Science Museum, you see, uh, you know, all of those areas. Those, those used to be the areas where we played when we were kids. Yeah. And, you know, it's changed beyond all recognition. They've got a couple of cruise ships in at the moment with the current oh, <laughs> COVID-19 in the, the Kelvin Dock or the George V Dock. Um, they've oh. got a few cruise ships in there. You wouldn't have got cruise ships in in the 60s. The Waverley was the only thing that cruised <laughs> up and down the, the Clyde in those days, I think. <laughs> so if we then start to move on a little bit, John, to talk about your first job. You mentioned there that your first job was in safety, which is quite interesting. When was that? So back in 76, 1976, um, I'd left school and um, I'd actually gone to university, I'd gone to Glasgow University not to study safety, but to study of all things microbiology and um, immunology. So I was going to, I had this dream of being a forensic scientist because I thought that was, this was a really cool and sexy thing to do. It was on the television fairly regularly at the time. Forensic science sounded absolutely fantastic. So that was going to be my career. I was going to be a, a forensic scientist to begin with, and um, went through, got through university, uh, and tried to find a, a summer placement with with that as a qualification. And I had this romantic idea of what forensic science was going to be like, and it was nothing like that. Mm-hmm. So all I could find was the opportunity at somewhere called the Hannah Research Institute, which was just outside Paisley. Okay. And I would spend my whole day inoculating hen's eggs with different types of viruses. I'd never see another person. All you'd be doing is looking at hen's eggs and, and, and virus cultures, and you'd be inoculating them all day. And I thought, oh, no, this is not for me. Um, and I answered, a, answered an ad in the paper for, um, for the HSE. Yep. And um, I thought, this sounds good. I had no idea what the HSE was or what it did other than what the advert um, uh, described. But I thought, this, this sounds like a nice balance of, uh, you know, getting to know people, technical skills, bit of law, and it'll get you out and about in the fresh air. Um, and, I, you know, I'm still an outdoor enthusiast, you know, nowadays. But this sounds a great balance. So I went along for the interview, and I guess I was quite brash in the interview because they were taking um, college students, so we're going to put... Uh, students in college, but they're also going to put students in university. Yeah. 
And um, I said, I said, look, there's no point in offering me the college place because I'm at university just now. I'll turn it down. So don't waste that. If you're going to offer me anything, only offer me the the graduate place, and I'll transfer from from Glasgow to Strathclyde. And I came back and told my mum and dad that, that was the way I'd handled the interview, and they were they were absolutely <laughs> they thought, oh man, you, you must have you must have ruined it. You must have blown it for yourself. But strangely, a couple of days later, I got a letter that said, "Yep, you're in." And so I did a um, you know, sponsored training uh, with the HSE in Scotland before moving down to the HSE in England in 19, 1980. So I, I graduated in 80 from Strathclyde and then moved down to England to the HSE in 1980. And that, I guess, that's the start of, of my career. So trained to be a forensic scientist, never did it. Yeah. <laughs> and then moved into safety and has, I've done that ever since. Brilliant. So how long were you the HSE for then, John? Well, I was training with them for, for three years, three and a half years, and then working with them for six. I, I, I left in 1986. Down, I left the, um, the English HSE in 1986 and then moved abroad. So I guess I did a total of probably eight years with them. Okay. And were you a specialist inspector or were you a general inspector? Oh, so chemical, a chemical specialist, so CMNIG. Um, Chemical Manufacturing National Interest Group at the time, so mostly high hazard stuff. Yeah. Um, SEMA, well, SEMA sites. They wouldn't have been SEMA sites back then, but they would have been eventually SEMA sites. Yeah. Um, so all the all of the the major hazard sites uh, onshore in the UK. So that was a specialism, um, which was it's a, it was really interesting. We were we were encouraged always to see um, a regulatory outcome. Or a prosecution as as the last possible resort, and I actually really I, I learned a lot in the HSE in terms of your negotiating skills and getting safety case operators round to the, the regulators' way of thinking and negotiating a settlement. So we always saw prosecution as a very much a, a, a last step. Um, really, always trying to get to a negotiated settlement um, with with operators. So it wasn't just about um, you know, brandishing the big stick all the time. Um, we had a lot of time to spend with operators. We were we were given um, a fair amount of leeway to talk to operators about safety cases to work out the best way forward. Um, and I, I think the HSE back in those days certainly was um, was quite a progressive organisation. Um, it wasn't just interested. It wasn't driven by by numbers, by uh-huh. you know numbers of prosecutions or the amount of money that it could raise from uh, intervention uh, visits or anything like that. It was a very different organisation, I think. Yeah. Um, originally, the HSE was more to give advice and guidance and go out and work with people rather than go out and look at the, the prosecution side of things. Well, I mean, I, I, like I say, I think we had the luxury of more time yeah. um, than, than the inspectors now do. And they're, they're, they're the victims of being held to targets as the executive is as an organization itself, yep. we had an awful lot more time um, to talk to people about, about things, to work out, uh, you know, joint and agreed outcomes. So I, I don't think, I don't think the people who work for it are any different. I, I just think we had the luxury of an awful lot more time. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. So you mentioned after you left the HSE, you moved abroad. Where did you move to, John? I went to Abu Dhabi um, in 1986, which was it was a big step. Um, I was married, young son. Um, I, I just fancied the idea of working in the private sector. Uh, my life up until that had been all public sector. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, I fancied the idea, phone call out of the blue um, from someone who suggested that there was an opportunity with Abu Dhabi National Oil uh, to go and work for them. They were um, building new refineries all along the Abu Dhabi coast. Um, and they were looking for someone because of what I'd done outside of safety in terms of um, you know public health. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were looking for someone to come and um, help them create standards on safety, but also run the the public health side of things. Um, and so I, I decided to go overseas. It was a really big step. I was expecting something very different to what I saw when I got there. Um, there was no no regulation in place, of course. It was pretty much um, 
large companies would bring their standards with them, but they would understandably dilute them when they got to the Middle East because the same sort of standards didn't apply. So you had this sort of safety racism mm -hmm. game being played. So large oil companies who would, wouldn't think of operating a certain way in, in the UK or Europe or, or America would operate to much lower standards in, in the Emirates. Okay. And so the, the task really was to try and bring those standards up but you had no regulation to fall back on. Yeah. So you'd move from a very heavily regulated environment in the UK to one which had none. So you really had to rely on you know, economic um, arguments, moral arguments, financial arguments, in order to get those standards upgraded, you, you had no legislation to fall back on. And so that was a, a bit of an eye opener because up until then, if I'd needed to, I could always fall back on UK legislation and say, well, you must do it because it says so. I, I had nothing in my armory like that yeah. um, when, we were, when we were in the Emirates. Um, but nonetheless, we, we managed to develop a really comprehensive uh, set of codes and standards, which actually form the backbone of much of the Emirates legislation now. So if you were to go across and look at the Labour Code, in the Emirates, you would probably see quite a lot of it that we developed back in the in the mid eighties. Um, but it was it was an interesting time, you know. You were uh, it wasn't. I mean, Dubai wasn't luxurious like it is now. Abu Dhabi was a small. Um, it was a small seaside fishing port more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, back in the eighties, so it was a very different world to the world you feel now. Um, and also, I spent, I think I spent four and a half years in, in the Middle East, all told, a couple of years in Emirates, and then I moved to, to Bahrain and spent a couple of years in Bahrain with um, Chevron Texco, Caltex. Cool, cool. That's really interesting. So quite pioneering as well and helping to form the industry of health and safety in the Middle East at that time. Yeah, you never thought that when you were doing it. I mean, I think... A lot of the stuff you look back on, you, you see it very, you know, in retrospect, in hindsight, you see it very differently to what you were doing at the time. Actually, all we were trying to do at the time was pretty much get through the day so you'd have a game of football at night. That was the only thing that held everyone together. Was yeah. Everyone loved playing football, you know, so whether you were Indian, Pakistani, Arab, the Arabs loved to play football, mm -hmm. <clears throat> or British or American. Americans maybe didn't play football so much. But that was all you wanted to do was... You get through the working day because um, it was hard work, you know, it was yeah. tough and play football in the evening. But yeah, we, we did a lot of good work. And um, like I say, some of it's probably still there in the uh, labour code, the UAE uh, labour code that you see nowadays. Uh, yeah. So you moved from Bahrain then. Where did you go after that, John? Came back home. Okay. Um, I, it was so we were around about the 90s. Um, you would get the six pack was coming in from, from Europe. Uh, Europe was having a pretty big influence in what was happening in safety in, in the United Kingdom. Yeah. And so we thought, well, we've got two kids now, um, third on the way. Mm -hmm. Probably it's not a bad time to move. And if we're going to move again, then let's move back to the UK. Um, so, and, and that wasn't to say we, we didn't enjoy our time in the Middle East. We absolutely loved it, especially the family was with me in Bahrain. Yeah. They absolutely loved it. Um, terrific place to live in and to grow up uh, for, for the kids at the time. But back to the UK um, and, and back to Lubrizol, um, pretty small organisation actually in terms of headcount, but mm -hmm. uh, very specialist. So specialist chemicals um, that go into fuels and oils. So okay. if you drive a car, then you would, the additives that go into the fuel, the viscosity index improvers, the detergents, the additives that go into the fuel that you use, so the dispersants, pretty much that was Lubrizol's line of work. So yeah. small volumes, <clears throat> highly, highly toxic um, in its manufacturing process, major hazard site uh, in Merseyside, um, and everything that you would want really in a small, uh, on a small site, American owned, American company, um, big on safety. Um, the US had gone through all sorts of problems with Union Carbide and you know and other big accidents, uh, Love Canal and, and, and stuff like that. Um, that they really focused on safety and environmental control. So it was, it was a big thing for the organisation. And and Bromborough, where I worked, had its it was a, like I say a major hazards uh, site, but it also had its own waste processing facility. 
its own landfill facility, its own incinerator, its own waste incinerator, and its own wastewater treatment plant. So it was a microcosm of everything that you'd want uh, to get involved with in safety or, or environment. And it was a, it was an EMAS, would be an EMAS site under the European auditing, environmental auditing regulations. So it wasn't very big, but it had all of the issues that you could possibly want to, yeah. you know, to keep your, to keep yourself um, intrigued and involved in safety. So um, terrific, terrific place to work. But as with all things, um, the Americans decided that they wanted to consolidate their manufacturing base. Um, they were going to move all of their manufacturing to much more modern plants in France. I think yep. planning was probably easier in France as well. So, so manufacturing moved to France and essentially Bromborough became a blend. So you would take finished um, chemical compounds and you would blend them. There would be no reaction, no chemical reaction. You would just mix them. Yeah. And so all of the all of the complexity um, dropped out. Um, all of the environmental issues at the tail end they disappeared because there was no waste streams, uh -huh. and it just became so much more uninteresting as a as a site. And um, so it was probably time to move again. Yeah. Um, my wife decided that she would have the say on where we moved this time, which was fair enough. Um, and so back to Scotland okay. and, and Motorola. Um, and uh, lucky again that they approached me. Um, yep. They had just opened Easter Inch, which was a big mobile phone manufacturing site at Bathgate. Yeah. And they were looking for someone with a kind of high hazard background um, that would bring a, an oil and gas mentality to mm. a site that was nothing like oil, oil and gas. Um, you know, it was a mobile phone manufacturing site after all, but they, they wanted the rigor yep. that came with that, that sort of approach. And they had a very different, um, Motorola had a very different style to things like safety. Um, yeah. This was the first organization that I dealt with that saw safety as a corporate issue. Mm -hmm. um, that saw, saw standards as being um, non-negotiable worldwide. So yeah. if they had a standard for machine guarding, then that was it across their operations worldwide. It didn't matter if it was China uh, or Chicago. Um, it was the same standards as far as they were concerned. And, and not doing well in safety had a real implication for senior managers on, on the sites. So mm -hmm. it was important, you know, when the corporate auditors turned up, corporate safety auditors, this was a big deal. Um, you know, a corporate safety audit was a big deal and they'd spend two weeks pouring over sites like, um, like Easter Inch yeah. um, or East Cobride or South Queens Ferry, whatever. Um, and it was, it was a big thing if you didn't get through the corporate audit. It was, a, it was a big issue for them. So this was the first organization I'd worked with that really saw safety as a management issue as opposed to a technical issue. And that was that was one of the things I would always take away from from Motorola. So if, if you were to ask me, you know, what were the influential positions that I held in those four years, this would definitely be one of them. Yeah. Um, change of mindset, really, um, in terms of safety. And that would have been right at the height of the mobile phone boom as well. It, so of course there would have been massive demand. Well, I mean, Easter Inch never stopped expanding when I yeah. was there. When I arrived, it was a, it was. The, if you know the Easter Inch building, it was the one, it was kind of the small bit at the end. Uh -huh. um, and he's, even as we were um, populating those manufacturing lines, phase two as we was being built. Yeah. And as we were populating those manufacturing lines, phase three in the distribution centers were being built. And in that short time, mobile phones had gone from you know, the big, the big old fashioned, we used to call them bricks with windows because yeah. that's what they looked like, the ones that sat in your car, the old SAM 3s. Um, it had gone all the way to digital. Um, and the little um, flick micro start, the StarTax, the little flip phones. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a, a revolution mm. in communication, um, even in the two or three years that, that, I, that I was there. Um, and I spent, I spent a fair amount of time with Motorola because I moved from Easter Inch to um, Semiconductors, yeah. Um, in South Queens Ferry, Moss 16, which was the old digital uh, plant. And, and again, that was a real eye opener because I, I, 
although Motorola was a big, it was a big organisation. It was it was very segmented. Mm-hmm. So the you know the folk who worked in mobile phone, they were the new kids in the block. So they were they were cool. They were trendy. And the guys who worked in semiconductors, which was the heart, the original heart of of Motorola, um, you know they didn't talk to anyone else because theirs was a was really a chemical manufacturing process, a really high hazard mm-hmm. chemical manufacturing process, I have to say. And they were different. Um, you know, they didn't talk to the guys from mobile phones, even though we were their biggest customers technically. But we didn't have a high hazard um, operation, and therefore we were below them. So it was kind of like the, the John Cleese, Ronnie Barker, Ronnie Corbett. You know, I'm better than he. And you know that sort of yeah. that sort of segmentation and, and siloing went on. Um, but they started. They tried to deal with that by moving people across across boundaries. So. I got transferred to uh, South Queens Ferry, I think partially because of what we'd achieved in Easter Inch. So we got through the corporate audit for the first time. That was the first time a site had ever done that. Mm-hmm. Um, we won a number of sort of honours. We won, we got the five star from British Safety Council. So, um, and I got, um, you know, a CEO award out of it. So there, we, we, had a, we, we had a good track record of producing good safety outcomes. And, and, and I think Motorola wanted that taken too semiconductor uh, part of the business as well. If there's any semiconductor guys listening to this, they will probably fundamentally disagree with me, but there you go. Um, <laughs> but I, I, again, so a couple of years at MOS 16, I had a great time. Um, again, the same sort of commitment to safety, this time um, driven much more by a necessity. You know, so if you're working with some of the really toxic gases that, that semiconductors deal with and you've got you know, high, liquid hydrogen sh- stored on site and um, you're working in clean rooms which are cleaner than hospital uh, operating theatres, then there's a real need yeah. for safety and environment to be at the top of the agenda. Um, and all of that, of course, came to a, you know, crashing down around about everyone's ears at, t- at the end of the century. It sounds a, a t- you know, at the end of the century sounds an ancient thing to say, but um, <laughs> semiconductors or memory um, I, I kind of operates in cycles and, and apparently it's a seven year cycle. Um, mm-hmm. So every seven years, there's a downturn in, yeah. in electronic pricing, um, but it picks up again. And mm-hmm. so everyone gets ready for this, this uptick. Um, and in 1999, uh, there was a big downturn um, yeah. in semiconductor prices. And we had, Motorola had just bought um, the, uh, the Siemens factory Mm-hmm. Um, in Dunfermline, yeah, and they were going to they were going to op- open that. Um, so they'd expanded their capacity. They'd bought new real estate. Um, they they'd, they'd they'd got a whole bunch of new um, equipment in. They were ready to uh, to meet this new this new demand when it arose, and it didn't arise. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, the market price took another tumble, um, and me along with hundreds of others in the uh, in the UK um, electronics industry were made redundant. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 1999, at the age of 40, I was out of work and I thought, this is the end. <laughs> yeah. I thought, you know, I've never been out of work before. My world has come to an end at 40. I must be hopelessly over the hill mm-hmm. and past it. And, and, you know, nobody will want to employ me. Um, but again, you know, Motorola even looked after us when we when we were made redundant. We got outplacement help. I went back to um, the the kind of sector that I knew, which was oil and gas, uh-huh. and I briefly went overseas again for a while to Iran. Although I have to say, six months before that, I lived in Paris for six mm-hmm. months, which was terrific. Yeah. And then, and then I lived in um, uh, Iran for six months, which was not. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, it was a it was a contract it was a contractor position and at the end of a year I decided I, I didn't really want to stay in Iran for any longer than I had to. It was an interesting project which is actually still going on. They're still building um, South Pars. It's an enormous uh, project. If everyone if anyone wants to go and look at it, just Google South Pars, mm-hmm. and you'll see it's it's enormous um, NGL facility that's been built for. The Iran Oil Corporation is gigantic. Um, 
but that was that was kind of that was interesting. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy my time in Iran. I enjoyed my time in Paris, but not in Iran. But that and that was principally because an awful lot of the contractors that we had delivering the job weren't particularly interested in safety. They were more interested in stage payments from the client as they were building um, this massive facility. And so it was, uh, this is the first time I really, I came across the, the insincerity um, towards safety. I, had, I hadn't really seen that before, this insincerity. Um, yeah. You know, you'd see all the great buzzwords, you would see all the terrific strap lines, you know, zero harm and, and uh, safety's number one priority. But in actual fact, nothing could probably be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. So after a year, um, it was time to you know, head back to the UK, picked up a couple of um, contract jobs, um, just building management systems and building assurance systems for, for organizations along the way. And then I think what must be probably one of the best jobs you can get in safety you know, working for an airline uh, and not any airline, you know, British Airways. Okay. And um, that was a, that was a, fa that was a fascinating role to have, you know, head of safety for British Airways engineering. So, you, you know, the real, the engine, if you forgive the pun, the engine room of the airline, um, <laughs> yeah. it, it was fascinating. You know, you have all sorts of expectations when you go and work um, for an airline um, some of which turn out to be um, better than you expect, and some of which turn out to be worse than you expect. But it was a it was a an amazing time. I mean, a lot happened in those three years. We had we had um, we were dealing with the, the aftermath of the Concorde crash mm -hmm. in uh, in France, um, and no sooner had we got Concorde fixed, and and we decided we would fly our fleets again. Um, you know, we had uh, we had 9-11, um, and then, then we got our fleets air, well, they got um, uh, CAA approval to fly them, and we dispatched our first Concorde um, on September the 11th, 2001. Okay. And, um, you know, oh. yeah, and at 1 o'clock, I'm sitting in my office at 1 o'clock, and I... I I, I had the pleasure of dispatching her, so I was engineering's representative on, on the dispatch team, so I watched it roll down the runway. I saw people line um, the, the corridors of Terminal 4 mm -hmm. with their noses pressed up against you know, all the glass, and it was one of the few times you could probably walk through Heathrow with a British Airways jacket on and not be accosted. <laughs> um, everyone was just waiting to see her you know, yeah. fire down the runway and the afterburners went on, she shot off and everyone clapped. And it was a really emotional moment, you know, to see this amazing machine return to service. Mm -hmm. um, got back to the office one o'clock, uh, one of my guys stuck my head, stuck his head around the, phone, uh, the door and just said, you'll never guess what's just happened. And I thought, oh, God, no. We had this vision of, because she wasn't going anywhere, she was just going to go halfway across the Atlantic on a test flight with passengers and then come back. Yeah. Um, I thought, my God, she's crashed. And then someone said, no, an aircraft's hit the World Trade Center. And um, I thought, well, that's not too bad, because I thought everyone thought it would be a small aircraft, mm -hmm. um, minor damage, nothing, you know, and then we all went downstairs to the video, to the media room. No one saw the first aircraft hit, of course, um, but we saw the second one hit yeah. and realized um, it was a passenger airliner. Um, and then, you know, panic for, for best part of, well, not panic, that's unfair. You go into crisis management mode for the best part of three weeks as you're trying to, you know, get planes where they need to be, from places they shouldn't be. You're trying to reposition air crews. Yeah. Um. You know, absolute okay. nothing we could. Space closed completely at that point. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So you know, we a lot of stuff ended up in Newfoundland, yeah. um, east coast of, of of Canada. A lot of stuff ended up in uh, in Europe. Um. Some stuff came back. You know, if they had enough fuel to get across, they went across to, to Newfoundland. If they didn't, they came back, but they would come back and they would go to Schiphol or they would go to Berlin or they would go to De Gaulle. And it just, it was a nightmare. Because then everywhere, everything's in the wrong place. So your services are actually disrupted for weeks because yeah. you don't have planes or air crews where they should be. Um, 
so there was a, you know the time with BA was it was really interesting. Um, the normal safety challenges, uh, as you would expect, but you know dealing with crisis. I've never dealt with a crisis on that scale. COVID is the next thing that comes close to it. Yeah. Um, but that was a that was a very focused crisis. You know that the airline industry had to deal with. And um, I think I got to the end of three 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 and a bit years with BA, and it was clear that the airline was suffering. Um, that the culmination of Concorde um, transatlantic travel, uh, the fuel um, price hike, believe it or not, foot and mouth, and the reduction in travel into the UK from the US just meant that um, BA at some point would be contracting in terms of numbers. Uh, and the easiest time to get, get a job is when you've already got one. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like the old saying. And, um, and so I went to Seven Trent for a year um, I didn't particularly, I didn't particularly enjoy that. I think Seven Trent, it was a, it was a bad time to, to join them. In fairness, they were, the PLC had just been created to sit above a water company and a waste company, which was Biffa. So Seven Trent owned Biffa at the time, mm-hmm. and they just had a whole bunch of growing pains um, in that organisation. And so I'd, I spent a year there, um, and then joined McAlpine. So this was actually my first sortie into the construction industry, uh-huh. which is where I've been ever since. Yeah. Um, but I had no construction experience. Um, but again, what they were looking for was, was a high hazard mentality to join an organization that didn't really have that sort of rigor around safety. Yeah. Um, and I spent a couple of years in Manchester working for their infrastructure division. Um, just, just modernizing the way that they looked at safety, the importance that safety had in, in board discussions, the importance that safety had in, in big business uh, decisions around uh, you know, mergers and acquisitions and stuff like that. Before moving to, I suppose, my first corporate position, which was with McAlpine's based in, in London. Um, yeah. And a couple of great years with Max, I, it's, it's I always feel really sorry that McAlpine's, that Alfred McAlpine doesn't exist anymore because it, uh-huh. it was a brilliant organization to work for. Great people, um, a great approach, um, and, I, and just a really friendly atmosphere. Um, mm-hmm. And, a, and a, a way of looking at safety that mirrored, I think, what I'd found in, in Motorola. So safety was a management issue. Yeah. It wasn't an issue for safety professionals to resolve. It was an issue upon which you expect safety professionals to give advice, but these were management calls. Should, the same way as, it, as finance was a, was a management call. Um, uh, Carillion approached, or Carillion looked to take over McAlpine's, um, but before that happened, I actually was in conversations with, with Carillion about joining them mm-hmm. um, or joining Lionel Roark. Yep. And you couldn't find two more different organizations in yeah. actual fact. So you had Carillion, which was very much a steady ship, command and control driven, heavily process driven, um, or, or Langs, which was seen very much as a maverick or yeah. in the construction industry. Um, maybe a bit chaotic, um, mm-hmm. which, was un- which would have been an unfair uh, description. But that's kind of the way it was seen outside um, uh, outside of lines, it was seen very much as the kind of the bad boy <laughs> of the construction <laughs> industry. Um, and so to me, the choice was obvious. It was join the bad boy. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I had a couple of uh, discussions with uh, senior folks in Langs and was really impressed with what I, with what I saw and what I heard. And again, Ray was, he, he wanted a change in the way that they did Safety, he, he's heavily into innovation, he's heavily into adaption and being lean and agile. And he wanted to do the same with safety. Didn't know how that would be done, but he realized that people within construction probably weren't capable of doing that. So he wanted someone from outside. So I joined them. And I have to say that the years I spent in Europe and then the years I spent in, in Australia and then came back to Europe, I think that's probably one of the finest organizations I've ever worked for. Yeah. Um, remarkable people, um, remarkable leadership as well. Um, you know, from Ray and from the other senior guys in the business, 
a real um, desire to innovate and do things differently and a, and a real courage, a real sense of courage to allow you to do that. Yeah. Um, so no micromanagement. We, you know, we get the best people and then we get out of their way and we let them get on with it. And, um, and that's a fantastic approach. It's really brave in an organisation to be able to take that approach. It is. It is. I mean, I think it helps that it's privately owned to start yeah. with. So there aren't that many um, external, well, there aren't as many external stakeholders that you have to keep, um, you have to keep sweet yeah. in, in terms of shareholders. Um, but nonetheless, it still, it still requires that bravery in an industry that's probably not that brave. Um, it still requires that bravery um, and that foresight to, to try things differently. Uh, and that then takes us on to, I think, the most significant part of my career, which was the years in Australia with Langs. Uh -huh. um, so we bought a business, or Langs had bought a business um, from Carillion, or from Moldham actually, yeah. part of Carillion. Um, and it wasn't working the way that we wanted it to work. Uh, mm -hmm whether it was uh, operationally, safety-wise, commercially, it didn't really matter. It wasn't working the way that, um, that Ray wanted it to work. And so there was a bunch of us um, encouraged, would be the right word, to go to Australia. <laughs> um, I'm not sure we had much choice, but, but that's not the way the story's tell, told to me now, but I'm not sure it was. Uh, but all that being said, it was a, it was a great four years. Wow. Yeah. I, loved I loved my time in Australia but and that was the transition into into safety two and safety differently I think so we 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 took the approach we had in Europe to Australia with us we got the sort of performance in the Australian business that we that we that we got in Europe and we thought well what's next um, this can't be it um, we're down to levels of of accidents where frankly we're having to wait for them to happen uh -huh. And when they do happen, they're not that significant. Um, yep. So where are we gathering our intelligence from? Where are we getting our, our you know, accident prevention intelligence from? We can't get it from accidents because we're not having very many of them. And we're not getting it from the accidents that we do have because oh, these accidents are slips and trips or yeah. they're cut heads or, you know, bang, you know, or bump fingers or something. These are not the sorts of events that are predictive of something big happening. You know, they're not going to tell us when the next crane is going to collapse or the next time we have a confined space entry where someone's going to you know, be overcome by, um, by a deficient atmosphere or by, or by gas. None of that. None of these things are going to predict that. So where do we get our intelligence from? And it was around about, so we looked to Europe and we thought, well, let's have a look at what's happening in Langerot, Europe. Um, because what they've done is what we are going to do. And so really their efforts in the last two years are going to be our efforts in the next two, in the next two years. So it's reasonable to go back and look at their um, progress and performance uh -huh. and, and believe that it's somehow indicative of where we are going to be going. Um, so we did that and we didn't like what we saw. We saw a business that was continuing to invest in safety, as you would expect. Um, but a business that wasn't seeing any improvement in its accident rates, but a business that saw three fatalities in the space of 18 months. And this mm -hmm. is a matter of public record. Um, Fatalities, which weren't occurring on sites where lots of accidents were happening. So they weren't occurring on sites where safety people were having to pay attention to things. They were occurring on sites where actually these projects would probably have won awards. Yeah. And the fatalities not occurred. Um, there, weren't, there weren't any accidents. There weren't any first aids in these. There was no sign in the traditional measures that said we should be paying attention to this site. There is something happening here that yep. we need to pay attention. There was nothing on all three sides. And so when we dug deeper, um, we decided that there must be a different way of safety must be something more than just the absence of accidents. There, there must be something more to that may be part of it. Yeah. But there must be there must be something more to it than that. Um, safety has to be surely about our ability to get things right it's not the absence of the things that we don't want that's unsafety yeah mm -hmm. safety is is getting things right uh, so it must be about building the capacity in the organization to get things right so it so happened at that time that um decker city decker was in brisbane 
Um, I'd known Sid from my days in aviation, of course, because he was he was a pilot and he, he was heavily involved in crew and cockpit resource management at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I phoned Sid up and, and said, um, I'm here. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on where we might take our safety program. And he said, it just happens that we have a meeting tomorrow in Melbourne. Yeah. Get yourself down there and we'll have a discussion about it. So, you know, serendipity, you know, if I'd phoned him the following day, he'd have been Melbourne, perhaps this opportunity would have been lost. So I went down, I flew down to Melbourne and even the day of the meeting, I'm, I'm thinking, do I really do, do I want to do this? Is it going to be a waste of time? Anyway, I, I went along to this meeting. There were 40 of us at the meeting. Um, and it was a general discussion to start with about how we could advance safety in, in Australia and the problems of, of, of safety in Australia. So actually, I was there to give an external perspective on whether Australian safety was good or not. Um, and I didn't think it was. The Australians did. Um, but I didn't think it was that good. I, think, I thought they had a problem with things like design, safety and design. I thought the big issues with the lack of a, a sort of CDM approach. They had no CDM approach. That they had all sorts of nightmares with, with temporary works. Um, so I didn't think it was that good, and I, and I said so. By the afternoon, there was only five of us left. There was myself, uh, Sydney, Kelvin Gen, a lawyer called Michael Tuma, and a guy called Daniel Hummerdahl, who now works for the New Zealand um, Safety Authority. Yeah, and we took it. We we took it upon ourselves there to take Decker's academic work and, and operationalize it. Um, so that was the first forum. Well, it was the first forum where safety differently as a term was coined. Yeah. Um, it was actually safety dash differently to begin right. with. Yeah. Um, and that was going to be the name of the website, safety dash differently. Um, but the internet doesn't like dashes. Um, in website names, yeah, and so it just became safety differently, um, and so it lost some of the the kind of nuances that we wanted in in that translation, mm-hmm. um, because it, what it was meant to be, it was meant to be a forum where we could just discuss different ways of creating safety. It wasn't meant to be one way that replaced the old way. It was meant to be a platform upon which numerous different ways of doing safety could should and could be discussed yep. with these three principles as the backbone so, you know people are not the problem the, the solution safety is not the absence of accidents it's the capacity of the organization to manage change and safety is not um, uh, a, a bureaucratic activity it's a moral responsibility so we took those three principles away and we built um, a playbook that you could give to project leaders so a replacement for the existing management system, which was built on safety different, differently principles. And despite the initial uh, reluctance and resistance uh, to use that, Langs took it on with both hands in, in Australia. Yep. Um, and you know the biggest critics of it at the time became its biggest supporters. Qantas took it on board and ran with it. A number of other Australian organizations took it on board and, and ran with it. And I brought it back to Europe when I came back with Langs um, a couple of years later. So that was, I, I, that was for me, that was the most courageous things that Langs ever did. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, they took an existing paradigm that everyone subscribed to, that everyone yeah. was afraid of leaving. Um, and they said, no, it's, it's not working for us. Actually, it's not working for anyone. We're just honest enough to say that it's not working for us. Um, we're going to do something different. Uh, and they did. And, you know, if you walked onto a Lang site now, you would see a different approach to safety, an inclusive approach, an empowering approach to safety that's not driven by numbers. Um, that's driven by a very different set of commitments. Um, and and that, that was the proudest moment of, of my career, was delivering that, not just for Langs, yep. but in general for the construction industry and, and now, for, you know, for the wider, for the wider world. Um, and I've taken that kind of approach with me ever since. So I, I left Langs in 2017, uh, uh-huh. took it to Battersea, yep. where I hoped to work with it as the client. That unfortunately didn't quite work out because of contractual different uh, changes in the contractual arrangements between 
the development corporation and the, and the principal contractors, Mace and Calpines, meant that the relationship was different when I arrived to the relationship that I had signed on to. Uh-huh. So the client had no had no involvement in standards. Um, they were really just interested in having Battersea finished yeah. uh, within the time agreed. So I went. I got back overseas with Acon, uh, with a couple of years. Took Acon through that safety differently journey, and I'm now doing the same with with SNC. Um, so, you know, from I, I I did safety traditionally for 30 years. I thought it was the right thing to do, and I think whole host of people do because they've never seen the the alternatives but having worked on creating the architecture for the alternatives um, you know I think safety is at a is it is at a crossroads just now yeah. um, a pivotal moment where it can decide to continue with what it's always done you know we still investigate things um, using tools that investigated accidents when wheels fell off carts you know, yeah. and when plowshares broke, you know, we take things to bits, we take accidents and, and scenarios to bits, we break them down into the into the constituent parts, you know, reductionism. We find the, what we think is a broken part and we put it all together. Yeah. How the hell can that approach work for when two airliners almost collide with one another in congested airspace where you've got air traffic controllers, you've got different languages in the pilots, You've got yep. different protocols in the cockpits. You've got all of this complexity. How the hell can that tool that, that fixed the plowshare or the broken car still be applicable in a world where you have all of this complexity? I mean, please. Um, so I, I think safety is at a crossroads. I think, we can, I think we can decide that the tools that have got us to where we are were great and we don't want to abandon them. We don't want to give everything we've... we've um, we've used, we don't have to give it all up. And we certainly don't want to give up the gains of the last 20 years because they've been remarkable. Yeah. But I think we have to supplement that approach with a new set of tools. So it's not, I, people say, is it safety one or is it safety two? You know, is it traditional safety or is it safety differently? It's not, it's and. It's safety traditionally to an extent and safety differently. It's safety one and it's safety two. And, and Decker and Holnagel have always said that it's, you know, there are elements of the, of the original and traditional that you will continue to have to use. Yep. But we have to approach it with a different set of eyes. We can no longer see people as the biggest problem, as a risk to control in organisations, because they're not. And they're it's hugely adaptive. Time to be able to get the workforce to that mindset and working with the workforce. What I've seen across my career is no matter how you approach it, if you are using safety one, safety two, you're going into the workforce and they've been conditioned over the past 20 years that they've operated to the traditional model. A lot of the time it's been, they'll have preconceived ideas and it will be built from their education, their early life, that you don't tell tales in people. If you see something, you just don't say anything about that. They'll just go away and leave you alone. Well, no, we're here to try and resolve this and make sure that it's not going to happen. It's not going to reoccur and we're not going to take punitive measures against you but the people are conditioned into that mindset and yeah. you need to really bring them on the journey and recognize that. Yeah, I, I think, so I think when you get the trust of the workforce, um, and that's sometimes a difficult thing to do, particularly in, in construction, um, because they're often transient. Um, you know, you might not have them working for, with you for exclusively. You know, one day they might be working on a Lang site, the next day they might be working on a Balfour site, and the next day they might be working on a Kia site. Um, yeah. But getting, so getting their trust is, is important. Um, but I think if you show a genuine interest in what they're doing, yeah. um, you, you win them over. So I, 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 my approach is, you know, you go, go and ask, don't talk to them, go and ask them questions, but don't ask them questions like, where are your gloves? <clears throat> or why are you not wearing your hat? Ask them questions like, you know, when do you struggle? When is work difficult? If you're going to, if you're going to be hurt, you know, doing this task, when's it, when to, when's it going to happen? Um, you know, these guys are the experts. They are the experts. They stand in the middle of risk every single day and there isn't a thing they don't know about doing what they're doing and, and the safe way of doing it. There isn't a thing they don't know. Um, but we pretend that somehow we are better than they are um, at the job that they have done for the last 30 years. 
and yet we don't know anything about it. You know, so we we force method statements and assessments and one way of working on them that we have no idea whether whether these things will work or not. Mm -hmm. The workforce take that, they adapt it, <clears throat> and they then um, complete work as done. You know, often not <laughs> often the stuff we we give them doesn't make life easier. So they complete it in spite of the difficulties that yeah. we put in front of them. So, you know, involving them by, by talking to them and getting them to design the safety measures around how they work um, goes a long way to building that confidence and that trust. And then you start getting tales back to you about, well, you know, the last time you, you should have been here the last time we did this because it was absolute there. And they start telling you about all the things that would go wrong, things that, uh, things that did happen but otherwise would have been, um, they would have been hidden from you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that and, and safety differently is big on, on trust, on, on empowerment. It's not engagement, it's empowerment. You know, so admitting, accepting that these people, they actually have the power already. Yeah. Um, whether you like it or not, as a, as a manager or an owner of an organization, you have put safety in their hands. Mm -hmm. Whether you like it or not, whether you think you have or not, it doesn't matter, you have. Uh, now that you realize that, what do you want to do about it? You either hide behind the procedures that you created and pretend that that gives you safety, or you talk to the guys who actually do the work, understand how they create safety, how they get things right most of the time, rather than the only time you show interest in them is when something goes wrong. Oh. And nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, it's not their fault. It's, the, it's an organizational issue that you have to fix. So that's really been a, a big influence, I suppose, in the last in the last ten years in the way that I've worked, and I, and it, I suppose it's one of the reasons that you know I've got the reputation that I've got now, which um, <laughs> which is interestingly, it's the Scots that get the reputations. I don't know if it's because we're quite <clears throat> we're quite willing to be combative and uh, and provocative, but there you go, just one of those things. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So that's a really good and interesting career journey that we've covered over there, John. It's absolutely fascinating to me. Safety definitely, of course, has become an absolute world phenomenon. Um, I've been talking to some guys in America recently that do podcasts over there. They're absolutely on the page with it and implementing it in their organisation. Um, You've got to the absolute pinnacle of your career. You're leading an organisation from a safety perspective. You've brought safety differently to Europe. You've made massive changes in the industry. What's next for you? <clears throat> well, I, I don't think it's so. I, I don't think there's anything. There's, I don't think there's anything else that I want to do in terms of um, uh, if there's something different that I want to do. I mean, I, I'm quite prepared to accept that in ten years' time there will be something replacing or augmenting or adding to safety differently. Uh, and that's just the nature of things. I absolutely understand that. Um, so I don't think there's, I don't think there's a, a new role or anything like that. Uh, I do believe that there still is a degree of resistance to be overcome um, in moving the safety world forward. I actually, I think everyone approaches safety. I think everyone approaches safety with the absolute best of intentions. I don't think there's anyone who's doing something that they don't think is right. I just think it. Would, I, th I, I think the time has come for us to try and bring all of these ideas together in a collaborative fashion, rather than in a confrontational fashion. I mean, we're starting to see the emergence of my church is better than your church. So safety one is better than safety two. Yep. Safety differently. There's nothing different about it. There's nothing new about it. Well, okay, if that's the case, then let's figure out a way forward um, where we can improve the safety for everyone. And if that means that we have to forge a different outcome using these approaches, then that's fine. So I think there is still a lot of persuasion. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of canvassing and lobbying still to be done. Um, I do still worry <clears throat> that we might take the wrong direction, the, the wrong path. And we might head down the road of, um, you know, more bureaucracy, more control and constraint. Um, but I think if anything, you know, if the if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's the need to adapt. It's the uh, it's the obvious that one way of fixing a problem, a complex problem like a like a viral outbreak, there is no one way of doing it. 
Um, yeah. You know, you, there isn't a single playbook that you can roll out to an organization and say, this is the way to manage a pandemic. You know, it's about small, small control, high level control, um, rules for high risk activity at the center that people understand. So I, I, I never had any doubt, to be honest, that people would comply largely with the, with the lockdown rules because they make sense and people understand rules when you make them for high risk activities. Yeah. High risk scenarios. What they don't understand is when you, when you start confusing them yeah. with manipulating those rules or when you start allowing those rules to be broken mm -hmm. um, for one group and not for another, that's when people start to get confused. <clears throat> but largely the, rock, the lockdown is being complied with because people understand the need for rules in high risk situations which yeah. is entirely consistent with a safety differently approach. You know, you have rules for high risk situations, but you don't have them for everything because they don't make sense mm -hmm. <clears throat> for everything. So I, I still think there's a need to, to lobby on, on behalf of changing the way that we look at safety. Um, whether that means doing that from an organization or whether it means doing it, um, you know, as an individual, perhaps in a consulting basis, I don't know, but there, there definitely is a, a network of of individuals, um, Kevin Furness, you know myself, Todd Conklin, who you, you, you no doubt heard of, yeah. Ron Gant, Don, Daniel Hummerdahl. You know there is a network of of people all over the world now. I think who are strategically positioned to leverage safety differently, or whatever it is you want to call it, the modernisation of safety, if you like, to leverage that um, and to make sure that we don't we don't retrace our steps and go backwards. Um, because I do worry <clears throat> that um, if we don't modernize the world of safety, there is a risk that we just become irrelevant. You know, the modern world of work will not, will not tolerate <clears throat> performance drag. It won't tolerate unnecessary bureaucracy. And we're experts at that. Um, so there, I think there's a risk that unless we do modernize, we just become irrelevant. And yeah. no one will listen to us because, frankly, we won't have anything worthwhile to say. Uh, and that's, you know, that's not to dismiss the successes of the past. That's not to throw down the gauntlet to other groups and say our approach is better than yours. Because, listen, the last 20 years has been remarkably successful in reducing incident rates. Mm -hmm. We can't say the same about serious incidents and fatalities. We have to admit that. And I think we have to realize that the tools we've got to deal with those things are no longer fit for purpose. And we have to be courageous enough as a profession to throw them away if they're no longer serving us properly and look to the future and a different set of tools. And that's the big benefit some organisations will be able to get to capitalise. If you get someone in that's able to drive that for you and push that through your, your business and into your industry and then out into the wider industry, it will pay dividends not only for your business but for the industry, the reputation. And we've seen that with Langerurk and Safety Differently too. Yeah, I mean, so we, we reckon that 60% of the rules, safety rules that you have in an organization, you probably made up yourself. Yep. You know, you can't blame the regulator. You can't blame someone else. Actually, these are rules that you made up yourself, probably following incidents that you had years ago, you know, in parts of the business that you might no longer even own. And yep. so you have all these arcane rules clogging and cluttering up your system, producing an enormous performance drag. You know, get into that, get your system decluttered, as, as Dave Proven would say, get in there and, and get it decluttered, get your safety system running smoothly, realize it's not just about the absence of accidents, it's about the capacity to get things right, it's the capacity to handle change on a daily basis, realize that's what your workforce delivers or tries to deliver on your behalf every single day, and you'll go a long way to creating that, that outcome that you want, which is a workforce that doesn't get injured. But you don't stop injuries by looking at injuries. That's like kind of that's like a big game of whack-a-mole, you know, yeah. where you get you get one in, you get an injury, you whack it, and then you know five minutes later it pops up somewhere else and you whack it again. That's that's not a recipe for sustained and continuous improvement. There's a, there are better ways of doing it, and we now know that. So you've mentioned some really influential people that you've had involvement with across your career, John. Who's been the most influential people in your career? My dad. 
who is sadly no longer with us. Um, he died almost a year ago today. Um, but he, he, he was the most influential, um, not just in my career, but on everything. He taught me the need to be curious, um, which, is, which I think is the most, or he didn't, he didn't teach me the need to be curious. That's unfair. He never let me lose the ability to be curious. Kids are curious naturally, and I was always curious as a child. And he encouraged that in me, not just in, you know, in my job, but in everything. You know, so I've continued, to, I've continued to study outside of what you would consider to be a traditional safety role. Yes. I've studied psychology, I've studied philosophy. Um, I think because that keeps, your, that keeps you curious about, I mean, nobody asks better questions than philosophers, questions that can't be answered. Yeah. I think we need to get better at asking questions and um, not having answers. You know, we think we should have answers because not having answers is a sign of weakness. So I think my dad was the most influ influential because he just kept that spark alive in me. Um, in terms of work, um, it would probably be, uh, let me think, Decker's been a big influence in terms of how I think. Um, Conklin has been a big influence in terms of um, how you sell these ideas. Uh, you know, safety can be pretty boring at times. Yeah. Uh, you know, Conklin always encouraged me to, it can be sexy, John, and it can be particularly sexy in a Scottish accent. So yeah. he, he loves... He's absolutely um, hilarious. The, yeah, he loves the kind of webinars that we do. Because yeah. you've got this Scottish accent, you've got this Scottish lilt. It's just so sexy when you say these things. <laughs> I'm not sure it's true or not. I'm a little bit worried when he gets, gets, goes down that path. Um, I think... Ray O'Rourke in terms of just the courage and, yeah. and, and giving me the freedom to do these things. That took a lot of guts. Um, and um, you're not always seen eye to eye in terms of outcomes um, and in terms of, uh, uh, you know, things in business. But uh, he, he was a huge, you know, hats off. I don't think I'd be where I am today unless he had given me that freedom back in, you know, 2010 yeah. uh, to do these things. So, you know, just different walks of life. Um, uh, I, I think, um, strangely, no one really is from the safety industry. And that's not because they aren't inspirational. That's because I think the way that we did things in the past just didn't lend itself to inspirational figures suddenly, suddenly appearing. Um, whereas I think it's different now. I think if you look at some of the folks that are on the scene, uh, you know, these are really influential people. Um, they're, they're able to command, you know, big audiences in terms of, you know, not just safety, but the impact that safety has on business. Uh, so, I, again, I think we're seeing just the, the we're seeing the, 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 the components, the successful components or the necessary components of safety individuals changing. So, you know, when I look for people in safety to recruit, um, I look for people who are courageous. I look for rule breakers. Mm -hmm. um, I, need, I need people who understand rule breakers. Uh, so courageous, curious, and challenging. You know, I don't think these be three adjectives you would have necessarily recruited against for safety yeah. professionals at the turn of the century. Yeah. You probably would have excluded them. Oh, this guy's curious, courageous, and challenging. We definitely don't want him. <laughs> Whereas nowadays, these are, these are, you know, preferential. These are desired attributes for safety folks to have. So I think the world of safety has changed. And therefore, you know, I think more and more, um, when you ask that question, you'll probably get safety, safety people nominated. But for me, it was much more people from my family and general business people as opposed to yeah. safety folks. And it's different for everyone that's answered. It is. It. You know, everybody's given us a different perspective and a different yeah. answer on it. So that's, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that with us, John. Um, just to move on a little bit from there, what advice would you give to someone starting out new in health and safety today? Well, I think it's this, it's this curiosity piece. Um, I, I think my advice would be accept that you don't have all the answers. Um, what you need are better questions. Uh, that ultimately, your success will be determined by others, normally the people who are working on, on the front line. So yeah. don't think for a minute you know their job better than they do because you don't. Um, 
your job is to allow those people to be successful. Um, it's not to inhibit them. It's not to make their job more difficult. It's to allow those people to be successful. In order to do that, you have to understand how they achieve success on a daily basis, rather than simply be interested when something in the system breaks down. So I think this curiosity piece is incredibly important. Um, understand that what you need is better questions, not all of the answers. You know, so, so, so questions like, you know, when do you struggle? When is work difficult? Um, if you're going to be injured doing this, when's it going to happen? If I gave you £50,000 to spend on safety on this site, how would you spend it? You know, and people come back with remarkable insights about how things could be improved. So listen to people um, ask, and ask better questions. Don't assume that you've got all of the answers. Um, you know, be humble. Uh, I, think, um, I think humility goes a long way to, to building trust with the workforce. Yeah. So that would be it. Um, I think the technical side of things is a gimme. You're not going to get far <clears throat> in our line of work unless you understand the technical issues. Yep. But I think the human skills now are much more important than they ever were. Yeah, um, the ability. Things, yeah. yeah. So that would be the advice. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you, John. And thank you very much for getting involved in the podcast. It You're very welcome. On behalf of the Safe and Your Average podcast, thank you. You're very welcome. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. You take care. Thanks, John. You too. All right, Blair. Cheers. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide.